I think the guilty person in our culture doesn't get nuance, doesn't get benefit of the doubt, doesn't get an opportunity to explain. And I just, I wish that the elders had have sat with me and reviewed it, even if the outcome had been the same. I think that it would have been more redemptive to talk to me and to give me an opportunity to explain um, just what was going on and where I was coming from. And again, I don't wish that I was still at harvest. I just wish that it had gone down a different way. Welcome to Indie Thinker with Reed Huberman. You're about to make the jump from the dishonest mainstream media into free and independent thought from key thought leaders on the subjects of culture, causes, politics, and faith. Welcome to Indie Thinker with Reed Uberman. I'm your host, Reed Uberman, and I am very, very excited to have a very special guest on today and a very compelling story that I'm excited for you guys to hear. So for 30 years, Dr. James McDonald served as the founding and senior pastor of Harvest Bible Church, uh, Harvest Bible Chapel in Rolling Meadows, Illinois, one of the biggest churches in the U.S. with something like 15,000 in attendance. Um, on a weekly basis, and for more than 20 years, he was the Bible teacher of the broadcast ministry Walk in the Word, which I absolutely loved, by the way, listen to on a regular basis. He's also a founder of Vertical Worship, and of course, he's a prolific author of more than 15 books. Uh, Pastor James, thanks so much for being on today. Great. Thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely, man. So um, obviously, I wanted to have you on today so that we could uh, so that we could catch up with what you're doing, but also to, so that we can wade into some waters that I, um, that I know are a little bit testy. Um, so I want to thank you right off the bat for being willing to have this conversation with me, because I know that some of what happened at Har Harvest Bible Chapel is still a little bit raw, and, um, and we don't want to pick at scabs, but also I think that there needs to be some, um, some other parts of the story that need to be told that maybe certainly my audience may not know, but maybe even people generally may not know. So I know this stuff is pretty raw, so I appreciate you being willing to, to jump in here and, and tell your side of the story. Um, right at the front, I just want to say, and I actually got this from you, which I thought was a very noble comment, that you're not interested in protecting your reputation, but you are interested in protecting the church. And I think that a lot of the one-sided storytelling that, that happens in the in the media and then let's go as far as to say in activist journalism um, can really cause collateral damage and when especially when i saw some of the um, christian activist journalists that kind of attach themselves to this story and that typically attach themselves to these kind of stories i really got burdened with it um, and these guys just generally speaking and i know i'm painting with a broad brush here but I, as, as I've waded through many, many, many of these stories and the rise and fall of Mars Hill with Mark Driscoll, which is like the number one podcast for faith and spirituality right now comes to mind, is that these, these activist journalists would have you believe, because they're only telling one side of the story, that the biggest issue in the church today is white pastors who have some implicit racial bias or uh, bigotry against the LGBTQIA plus community or uh, that there's not enough female representation in churches. And, and, and they would have you believe that these are the big issues going on in the church today, rather than what I think after 18 years of ministry is really the, the same issue that's always been the issue that I've noticed is biblical illiteracy, is that people don't know how to truly develop a consistent and coherent Christian worldview. They don't know how to engage the truth and operate in the truth by and large. Um, and perhaps some of that blame lies at the feet 
of church and pastors. But, uh, but nonetheless, I feel like one-sided storytelling really does create a, a problematic uh, issue for the way in which people view Christianity, the way in which people view pastors, the way in which people view the church. And I feel like we need to tell the other side of the story. So I was told a long time ago to beware of one hand clapping whenever you see that something's wrong. Um, and so I'm happy today to have you come and share maybe the other side of that story, the other hand to, the, to that clap, so that, uh, so that we can engage the truth and then we can think for ourselves about these issues rather than what's just been kind of shoved down our throat. Before we jump into Harvest Bible Chapel, why you were forced to leave there and some of the issues there, I want to just start right now with, with what you're doing. So in the wake of you uh, resigning and being fired from Harvest Bible Chapel, you are now in the process of doing some things in ministry. So tell us a little bit about what you're involved in right now. Uh, well, on the anniversary of uh, my exit from Harvest, um, uh, February 2020, I started 40 days of prayer and fasting to seeking the Lord about I needed to get on into what the Lord had for me next. And so um, I started uh, a online, you can still see uh, the 40 uh, Instagram posts, which was a devotional from Isaiah 40. And, um, you know, just comfort, comfort my people, declares the Lord. And all the things that are declared there in the first five verses, we spent like 40 days on it. It's just so awesome what's there. And in that time, that's when COVID hit. And when I started that, there was nothing. And when I was done with it, the Lord had led me to, uh, start something. I was actually beginning um, a stint at a church in California, seeing what the Lord had for us there. And um, I never really got to preach to a live audience. Mm. I mean, so we stayed out there for a few months. I'm still very good friends with the pastor of the church there. I wasn't in a paid position, but we were just seeking to volunteer and serve the Lord in any ways or opportunities that he presented. And uh, I started something called the Home Church Network, which uh, now has I think um, many thousand people have subscribed to receive the weekly a feed of a worship uh, preaching uh, um, a thing that comes into their home. And we're doing training, helping people know how to take that content and share it with their neighbors and the people in their neighborhood and lead people to Christ and disciple them. So that's what I'm doing uh, now. I'm also, um, you know, we were really left without uh, the community that we had spent our life building. So we were very, very alone and frankly, pretty uh, damaged and disillusioned as it mm. relates to Christian relationships. So we, you know, I need to believe that what the Bible says about how believers interact with one another can be true. And so my greatest um, proclivity has always been working with and leading men. So, and I love to ride uh, motorcycles. So I am uh, in the process now of, uh, of uh, start, <laughs> starting a motor, that's my uh, our, I, uh, uh, logo uh, from Harley, but I'm starting a motorcycle club and cool. uh, we're not uh, launching anything publicly. We have a group of men that meet together and honestly, we're just trying to experience an authenticity between us hmm. in Christ. That is something that we feel like is worth making public. So yeah, but I put a ton of time into that. And really, you know, one of the things that happens when a church grows is you spend so much of your time working on the many that you uh, struggle with the much. And yeah. I had always wanted to be about um, a quantity of, I always wanted to be about a quality of discipleship, not a quantity of disciples. And so I'm going to tell you that quantity mitigates heavily 
against quality mm-hmm. and just does. And so I've learned that. So I'm really, really wanting to have a quality experience with a small group of men about what, you know, it says in first Peter two seventeen. you know, honor the King and I don't know, kiss your mother or something. And then, <laughs> then, then it says, love the brotherhood. Mm-hmm. It's simple, three words, love the brotherhood. And I got to say, uh, Christian men, uh, I want to confess myself as guilty in this. Mm. I'm not saying, oh, boy, those people really need to learn this. I need to, I want to experience still in my lifetime the level of mutuality and Christian brotherhood and discipleship that the Bible uh, prescribes. I, I don't see it very many places. Yeah. Do We're you think that it's? That. Do you think that that goal is antithetical? Now, this is a big question, so we don't have to dig into it too much. But do you think that that goal of true brotherhood and true community is antithetical to the modern day megachurch movement? And this is coming from somebody who was a megachurch pastor, one of the biggest. Yeah, well, megachurch movement, there's no movement. There was, you know, a couple of hundred megachurches. There's no movement. There's 400,000 churches in America. The whole thing to me was, a, you know, kind of a marketing thing. And the number of, you know, you get down to the bottom of the ocean and you see a whale. But what's really shocking is you see the number of fish that have sucked onto the whale hmm. and are just riding around. And that whole thing, the modern megachurch movement, that's spawned by, you know, fish that have sucked onto a big whale. I, there was no movement. It was an anomaly. It's always an anomaly. It's they were one-offs. They were explicable things that were reflective of culture and people's desire to experience a show rather than to experience community. And there were very, my show was very biblical, but it was still Absolutely. a big production. It was a big production. It's very very high impact. What we called earth-shattering, window-rattling, life-altering church, and everything was about putting that in front of people every week. And when you really get that going, you can't order enough chairs. Hmm. And, but it's very hard and there's a lot of cost involved with it. And I, um, you know, the cost of all of that did not affect me well. Hmm. I just wondered, I've wondered a lot about one of, there are given, there's gives and takes in everything in life. There's give and take. And I'm wondering how quickly true community becomes one of those things that you're willing to give up in the, in the process of the mega church. Well, we'd, Anomaly, if we use your language, in the megachurch anomaly, how quickly uh, that becomes the um, the thing that we're willing to push to the wayside for the sake of other things that are produced. So, I mean, I don't know, but um, I just I, 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 ever pushed, I just would tell you, Reed, you're. I mean, I can't believe you want to know what I think about anything. So I'm <laughs> left by that, and I'm not trying to contradict you, brother. We had a beautiful prayer time before we started here, and I consider you a dear brother in the Lord. So I'm not trying to contradict you. Go for it. Con- contradict. Say, that the the mega church movement or anomaly or whatever we want to call it the problem um was less i don't know what was going on in all the individual churches and i'm not here to judge anyone i could just tell you that a big part of the problem was the number of people that were aspiring to it and mm. the churches um putting on conferences and coming and principalizing it all and saying if you do these these are the things we did and you yeah. can learn how to do them and the expectation of the results and the jealousy of those who achieve it and the 
fact that they then become targets yeah. and the resentment that so many pastors feel. And I'm going to tell you, I love pastors. I've always loved pastors. And I love a pastor of a church of 60 people as much as a pastor of a church of 600 people or 6,000 people. And yeah. I don't think that there's anything, part of the problem with the whole leadership focus was it was a technique-based thing that seemed to communicate to guys, look, your technique's bad or your skill set's not a good match or there's something wrong with you or you would be seeing these same results. God's not unwilling and on and on and on. And I think that's so detrimental. And I think with social media and what other people were doing and it really being in their face, I, I think that it's built, there's just a ton of resentment out there. Yeah. And the way that pastors who achieved some level, a lot of them now, you, I'm sure you've heard about what happened at Watermark Church and of course, Mars Hill and Harvest. And I could go on with a lot of them you know, the presenting failure on the part of the pastor, yeah. and how true or false that is, put all that aside. The fact is, is that some pretty big ministries have been torn to shreds by people who um, are crusading against what they believe they see. Yeah. And, and so the whole thing to me is pretty, it was pretty rancid from top to bottom. All right, so let's dig into that just a little bit. So um, I'm going to be careful here with the timeline because I, I don't want to butcher this, and there's a lot of moving parts. So um, okay. starting around 2010, uh, a little bit after that as well, um, is when a lot of this um, controversy started to happen. Um, so uh, for the sake of time, I'm going to try to synthesize it, and then you go back and correct me uh, if I'm wrong about any of this or I, I miss any pieces. Um, but uh, so there started to be some uh, some financial issues at Harvest Bible Church. Um, and again, if this is not fair, you, you tell me, um, would rather, I think would you rather if I just gave it to you, cause I mean, I have it. Okay, sure. Go, go ahead. 2007, we had a, uh, um, construction overrun in Elgin that started in 2005. And in 2006, I was in on a, uh, a ministry trip in, uh, the Mediterranean area, looking at some of the journeys of Paul and so on. And, uh, this deal was um, erected, it twisted, it distorted, the whole job was shut down, remedying that almost bankrupted the church. I've mm -hmm. written about that in Vertical Church. Um, some significant leaders in the church left right then, just gone, and left a big vacuum and created a lot of why would they leave, why would they leave? That was kind of round one. By 2009, we had gotten out of the construction problem. We opened the new building but we had $69 million in debt, which, you know, if you just throw that number out there, that sounds insane. But we had uh, by then pretty close to um, almost $100 million in net assets or in gross assets. It's still a lot of debt. It was too much, way too much. And it was just a fiasco. And so we made the mistake as elders of not telling the whole church. Hmm. Just a big error. Just a big error. Well, we caused it. We're responsible for it. Why should we burden the church about it? We had all of our reasons, and we began to diligently go about remedying the problem, which we did. So, um, you know, by 2011, 2012, the church's net assets, because we had been given some buildings and so on, was up to around 120, and the mortgage was down under 60. Um, th this, these kept growing and growing. When it finally came out, and that website was launched reorganize the leadership of the church. And I had um, met with the same elders every Wednesday from when the church first began. So it was 200 people. We had an elder meeting every week. Well, that was great because we needed lay leaders. We didn't have anything else. 
But by the time we had multiple people working in our HR department and a whole accounting department, and the church was just way too big to be run by volunteer elders. And so we went through a pretty significant study of how to restructure the church. And there were uh, people that felt uh, displaced by that. Mm -hmm. And um, they ultimately formed the group outside the church that began this withering attack. And, and, I, that, and I want to stop right there real quick. So hold, hold on to your thought. I think it's important to stop there because one of the things that was said about this tried to intimate that the restructuring of the church was an attempt to try to hide what took place with the building program. So I think it's important to hear your side of this here, that you're saying the that you... actually. Go, yeah, go ahead. Actually, I was, I'm very, I'm like hyper-disclosing. My biggest concern on this uh, recording, this podcast, is that I'd say too much. I'm <laughs> okay. not Anytime. Ever, I don't ever cover anything. Yeah. And I don't believe in that. And, and I don't, but it, it doesn't matter. We did um, not disclose those things publicly. And I don't think it's a right to know. We didn't have congregational government. Nobody could say that they had a right to know that. But I think people were giving generously. And I think it would have been better to tell them. Sure. It's not people make things into right, wrong things. I would just say that I think it would have been wiser to tell them yeah. because it's just too much of a thing to keep private from people that are doing a lot for the church. I wish that we had come forth with it. I never tried to cover that ever. The restructuring was actually because I was completely overwhelmed in the leadership of the church. And mm -hmm. if you think about complexity as a ladder read, I had, you know, truck drivers and ice cream scoopers ascending the ladder of complexity to come into our elder meeting. Yeah. It was the most complex thing we ever dealt with. I needed elders who were godly and qualified in every way, but who were working in um, career environments where handling the questions that we were asking was easy for them. Now, men are not really good at accepting the news that their career has not, it may have been suitable for you to be uh, a, a governing uh, participant in a church of 500, but by the time it was, the church was 5,000 or 10,000, by the time the budgets were in the tens of millions, yeah. Um, it was just too complex, yep. just too complex. And so the people that had to, you know, the music stopped and there was no chair for them. They didn't handle that great. Right. And, and, and we tried our best, but I'm just saying that my, in my experience, um, giving a volunteer person, the title of elder, along with the called seminary trained life committed people it's a false equivalency that sets the stage for them holding that too tightly and and i've very seldom seen a man able to accept that role and then willingly lay it down for the peaceful transition of power so that people with greater competencies can take their place i think that's very insightful yeah, yeah. So that led to a lot of behind the scenes kind of things and then you know there was continued missteps that we made and um, uh, candidly, um, we had what we called a performance culture where we had very, very, very high accountability for staff and for their performance. And everybody is up for that when it comes to hiring time. But when it comes to, yeah, we got this has to change within 90 days or we're going to have to make a change. I don't think I would ever attempt that again. I don't think I even believe it's my beliefs about love and community. And I constantly felt attention between who I needed to be to pastor this church and obey the scriptures and who I needed to be to run this organization with a performance culture and a commitment to managing people. And tons of people flourished under it. You know, in my last 
month at the church, we were awarded best Christian workplace. Um, act, uh, we were named to that list. A lot of people don't know that. That's mm. something that comes from an anonymous survey with every one of the 500 people that worked at the church. Every one of them filled up the survey to send it to the organization. And we've been trying for three or four years to listen to our employees and to make it a more healthy place to work. And, you know, Ken Sandy, for example, who uh, started uh, the Peacemaker Ministries told me that he tried to get onto that list for seven years and mm. couldn't even get his small organization. It was a big, big milestone. Harvest was a really wonderful place to work in the last months that we were there. And, but the stress of the withering attacks from outside the church had really taken a toll on a lot of people. And a lot of people were just looking to be out from under that. And in some ways I was one of them. And so what you did from there is you started to also receive some criticism from um, some bloggers and some journalists and then, um, two lawsuits were filed, one against a Christian credit union and then one um, against those uh, those individuals who were um, speaking about those things on their blog. And that blog was called The Elephant Debt, by the way. It was a play on your elephant room. Um, and, and so I, I want to get to the and this is probably a way bigger question, so I'm not ignorant of the fact that I'm going to ask you a very flat question, and I understand that maybe you already elaborated on it, but but I want to ask this question very directly and then just kind of see how you respond to it. So um, I want to read a quote from you that was taken from um, something you said on a hot mic. Uh, so I don't think you were aware that it was being recorded, but it was later uh, as was later released. And then I want, I want to say something about it, and then I have a question about it, because I think that this will give us kind of a window into what was happening in the last days before you left Harvest Bible. So you said, 30 years of faithful Bible ministry, and not once does Christianity today say anything positive about me or Harvest while they celebrate Rob Bell, cheer Brian McLaren, and hero worship Bill Hybels. Only time, the, the only time they have ever mentioned us in a negative light is, uh, is two to three times. In fact, CT is an Anglican, pseudo-dignity, high-church, symphony-adoring, pipe-organ-protecting, musty, mild, smell-of-urine, blue-haired, Methodist-loving, mainline-dying, women-preacher-championing, emerging-church-adoring, almost-good-with-all-gays-in-closet-Palestine-promoting Christianity, so of course they attacked me. Now, <laughs> um, I shared that for a couple of reasons. Uh, maybe I need a longer white. Like it. First of all, you like it. I do like it, but uh, maybe I need a longer, whiter beard to be a little bit wiser not to like it. But I do like it because, quite frankly, I think it's funny, and I also think it's a little bit true. Um, but the reason I really wanted to share that is because I think that's a window into the frustrations that you were feeling at the time with the attacks that were being lobbed at you by these bloggers and then by Christianity Today, who decided to... Uh, write an article about your church and about people leaving the church and what was associated, uh, all the kind of associated facts with that and kind of the misrepresentation that was happening. And and I have to be honest with you too, the way I feel about this is is I'm a, I'm a storyteller, I'm a story writer, I'm a screenwriter. And uh, I I know that you don't, to tell a good story, you don't need the truth. You just need an emotional narrative. You need something emotionally compelling to tell a good story. And, um, and I can understand, especially as a pastor and dealing with some of the situations that I've dealt with, why you, why you felt attacked and why you felt like um, you were being unjustly treated. And I don't think people give pastors enough kind of room here to be human 
Because the reality is, is who would want to be in your shoes at that moment with this financial difficulty that you guys were facing as a church, with all of these things being written about you from Christianity Today, and then these bloggers and all this stuff, and all of this stuff was coming at you, kind of snowballing all at once. So, and then I guess the other reason I wanted to share it is the last sentence there is you said, so of course they attacked me. So you were feeling attacked. Why did you feel the way you felt? Um, because I was being attacked. I didn't feel attacked. Okay. You can feel attacked when you're at a dinner party and somebody says, why did you take the last tart? I didn't feel attacked. I was being attacked. Okay. I was being attacked by a group of former elders related to the church. It wasn't the people on the elephant's debt website. It was the people that were feeding them, uh, factoids, some of which had a basis in truth, some of which were just their viewpoint. And I got to be candid. I'm, I don't really lack thick skin. I'm not bitter toward any of those people at all. I'm really not. I could see any one of them right now and have a loving conversation with them. It isn't that. It's the impact that it has on the sheep. It's the way that from the beginning of this part of the story all the way through today, most people, that's why I don't like the mega church conversation because it doesn't see the individual. Mm -hmm. It doesn't see the lady who tried to get her husband to come to church for four years to listen to a pastor that communicated in a way that she thought that he could relate to. And then he came and gave his life to Christ and got baptized. Then all this happened. And he's like, I told you the whole thing was BS and he'll never go back to church again. That's what we should be weeping for. Not for James McDonald. My goodness, the messenger is nothing. The message is everything. Mm -hmm. It's for the damage done. The people who get into the power store. Well, I want that chair. Well, I want to be in charge. Well, I well, great. Take it all. We, we, should, we shouldn't be fighting for position and power. I it, it, People that don't have it assume things about people that do. It was always about the people and loving the people and caring for the people in the ways that I failed. I'm grieved by how the people were wounded. Mm -hmm. And 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 when I'm feeling attacked even, sure there's something in it personal. But I have to say that you you were a pastor for 18 years. The personal part of it gets just beat out of you. At the end of the day, what did Paul say? And besides all of this, so all the beatings and the left in the deep overnight and all the things that Paul had endured, but he said besides all of this, the care of the churches. Mm -hmm and the burden that you carry for the people. And candidly, the most of the lay elders, no idea about any of these people or these stories. They don't stand at the front of the church beside the little casket and weep with the parents about the lost child. They don't know that part. They just show up in a room and wanna know, well, how much is he getting paid? And, and, and so that is where the grief really is. The grief that under Christianity today, all the people that were saved, all the people that were baptized, 200 churches planted, nearly 100,000 people worshiping on a Sunday morning around the world in these churches. There's no celebration of the gospel wins. Mm -hmm. There's just the advancement of what I felt was a very, very left, less biblical approach to Christianity. And I could live with them ignoring me. It's just that whenever they would talk, Christianity today, because of its history with Billy Graham, has more influence than it should probably have. Mm -hmm. 
And so when they say that's a good thing, the emerging church, that's a bad thing, um, James McDonald megachurch, that really is really wounding to a lot of people who consider them objective. And what I was saying in those litany of descriptors, they're, they're not objective. They have an agenda just like I have an agenda. And you have one. They're not objective. And what they're actually doing is advancing their mission to pull down hyper fruitful or apparently the Lord will be the ultimate judge, but they're pulling down models of government that they see as, um, you know, um, antiquated and they're championing models that appear to them to be more progressive mm -hmm. and, um, that's what I was really trying to say. Well, I, I do have a really big follow-up question, but I don't want to diverge too much from um, kind of the general idea here. So, so you were being attacked by Christianity today, but after this hot mic uh, recording was released on radio, the day after you were released from um, from Harvest Bible Chapel, the place. Same day. Oh, same, same day. day. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, the elders heard the, the elders were told about the recording. They never listened to the recording. They never met with me. They never brought any charges to me. I had no opportunity to reply to any of that. The first thing I would say is, is that in spite of the explanations that I've just given. So in, in law, there's guilty and there's guilty with an explanation. Mm -hmm. And I would say about that recording, which was illegal. So the U.S. Uh, law provides that recording a person without their consent is illegal. Why is that illegal, Reed? Well, because you, um, <laughs> I don't really know why. I can, I can guess, well, so you tell me why. It's illegal because the law is actually a beautiful, reasonable thing. And mm -hmm. it allows that a person should be able to have a sanctuary of free expression without fear that that is going to be used against their will. Yeah. Now, as a Christian, I want to say that we should be the same in public as we are in private. I'm not looking to hide behind the law. I would acknowledge that that recording is of my heart was unguarded and untended. Mm -hmm. I make no defense of that. And I'm not proud of the poor attempts at humor. I'm grieved that some people have made it into, he said he was going to do something versus he joked that he wasn't going to do something. Yeah. And, and, and I think those are very different, but I think the guilty person in our culture doesn't get nuance, doesn't get benefit of the doubt, doesn't get an opportunity to explain. And I just, I wish that the elders had have sat with me and reviewed it, even if the outcome had been the same, Yeah, that it would have been more redemptive to talk to me and to give me an opportunity to explain, um, just what was going on and where I was coming from. And again, I don't wish that I was still at harvest. I just wish that it had gone down a different way. And, um, and uh, I think that a lot, and, and ultimately not even because of how it impacted me and my family, but really I wish that it had gone down a different way because of how it impacted the people in church. And then the fact that the elders had a month before I was fired, they had a lengthy 2000 word statement of my repentance as it related to things that had happened mm -hmm. there way before these letters were edited as a campaign to get me dismissed and all that way before that 
I already knew I offered to resign. I said, I can't do this anymore. I'd been saying for two years in elder meetings, I'm not doing well. I, I went away to a ministry recovery center for a month in the fall of October of 2017. I mm -hmm. never should have come back right then. Like I just, I don't think only a pastor could know how this stuff can grind you down to the point where you can't sleep. You Absolutely. just can't continue. And I was, but you know, the show must go on and we have bills to pay and people come to hear him preach. And this is again, how this, the size and demands of the church were mitigating against health, against what was best for the church, against what was best for me and my family. And I own my role in that. But, um, you know, I should have uh, got out earlier and I tried to, and I'm very grieved that the people ultimately who affected what was a hostile takeover withheld from the congregation the things that I did own and confess as my sin and no one else is responsible at me. I was wrong. I have no one else to blame. And I, they had almost 10,000 words written by me. Some of it read to them in their hands the day they fired me. Most of the elders never saw any of it. Mm -hmm. And worse, it was never shared with the congregation. And that's sad because that hurts all of those people to this day. Now, just earlier, I think it was last night, I had someone say to me, I was talking, oh, it was this morning at breakfast, I, a guy said to me, I just met somebody who knows you and they just wish that you would own what you did wrong. I'm like, <laughs> I don't think people understand. I put that on my website, I've put that on my blogs, I've yeah. posted that everywhere that I can. I don't have a microphone anymore. Well, this is, yeah, this is the power of the storytelling that's happening in your absence. And this is why I'm so happy to hear your side of the story because it's one hand clapping again. and. And it's, it's never going to be told the way that it should be without you. By the way, this is a side note. This is my problem with the rise and fall of Mars Hill. The rise and fall of Mars Hill is, and obviously your two stories are different, so let me just preface. Um, the rise and fall of Mars Hill is all about what Mark Driscoll did wrong. There's no insinuation really outside of that, even though they try to very early on try to ask the question, but really it's all what Mark Driscoll did wrong. The big problem with the rise and fall of Mars Hill is that you never hear from Mark Driscoll. And, um, and, and he well, probably, conviction, right? What's so that? I don't think Mark is an introvert and mm -hmm. I don't think that Mark would ever. Yeah, I, I, I know he, he probably would not have gone on, but my problem with that is that one-sided storytelling only sells one side of the story. So, um, so w when you were finally let go, um, I just want to roll back to that real quick. So what was their cause? Because I know they have to have cause for firing you. So what was their cause? Was it that interview alone or that, sorry, that footage alone or recording alone? Or so was the it bylaws of the church? I was involved in drafting. I wasn't the lead person, but I was involved in drafting a, an improvement of the bylaws in 2014 and 15. Uh, Gene Getz, actually, who's kind of a grandfather of the evangelical, certainly the Bible church movement. Um, was very involved and he proposed that we would have a cabinet uh, for true accountability for me and for major legal decisions and then we would have an elder board that would ratify those decisions and then would serve on various committees be it the finance committee or the security committee or whatever and it was a really good model and it's of course poohooed online as some you know grab for a smaller group i was very turned off on the small group i much preferred the large group because I think it's less threatening to a pastor, but I agreed to have a small group, large group format, because you kind of get the best of both. 
And so I welcomed that accountability. I partnered with them and actually suggested the um, how to fire the senior pastor section in the bylaws. I was part of drafting that and I agreed to it, but they didn't follow it. Hmm. And what it said was that they had to meet with me as a member of the executive committee and all the other members, they had to present the charges to me. I didn't have to agree to it. I didn't have to support it, nothing like that, but I had to hear the charges and then give my response. And I mean, basic innocent till proven guilty. And if they had done that, then they could bring a recommendation to the full board and the full board only needed a majority vote to have me removed. But by never meeting with me, they not only really cheated me, but they cheated the congregation out of however, whatever I would have said would have mitigated that sort of mob mentality. Yeah. That's what it was. It and why mob. did and why do they you were meeting till three o'clock in the morning? They were screaming in the elder meetings. There was, I mean, that never happened one time in my tenure at the church. They were mm -hmm. having meetings that were not duly called, that didn't have an agenda in advance. They were acting very rogue. And there was a few people, isn't it always the way? All of the people that were driving the dissension to get me fired are all gone from the church, and most of them have moved out of state. And why do Always you- the way it is. And then the good people, the faithful people are left to clean up the mess. They never get to hear about the pastor's repentance. They never get a mitigated version yeah. of the story. They never get anything. And the only time you ever hear from these people out of state is when you say something publicly that seems to suggest that you know they're not the second coming. <laughs> and uh, the fact of the matter is they did a lot of things that were very contrary to the bylaws and it might not have changed the outcome. Maybe it shouldn't have even changed the outcome, but it definitely would have changed the method and the manner of how it happened. And that's what hurt the people. And that's what matters in the end. Yeah, 100 percent. And 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 although that does matter, I do have one other question and it doesn't necessarily directly take into account the people that are hurt in the wake of this. But but I think in a roundabout way it does is although I know we want to be careful to, to ascribe motive, but I think it's important to understand if you say the words hostile takeover and you say the words uh, that they had gone rogue, so we got the official why, but why do you, what do you think was really behind the why? Why do you think that they had it out to try to end your tenure there at Harvest? Well, I, I don't have to think about it. I know. Okay. And you think about in your own life, there's things you think and there's things you know. 100%. And so I actually know um, that there were, and I've written about this on my blog in a gentle way, um, there were um, groups of people. I'll just say I was hurt and I've already acknowledged on here I was not doing well. I went to that ministry recovery center, as I said, in 2017, I was not at my best. And I was pretty open about it in the meetings that I felt like I was getting more easily frustrated. I was ag I was um, uh, regressing in some, uh, I, I resigned very suddenly from Harvest Bible Fellowship. If you know the whole story, it wasn't as sudden as it appears, but that was very wounding to people. I regret that action. I said, so then I say, so today, by the way, that's a good check for if somebody's really repentant. Do they still acknowledge it five years later? Mm -hmm. And so I was for sure not at my best, and I was there was poor judgment that was going on. I mean, um, so uh, I acknowledge all of that. The reason I use the words rogue and what was the other one you said? Hostile I said? takeover. Hostile takeover is that's a factual assessment. Mm -hmm. We had an elder covenant of conduct. It was not followed in any way. 
and they did not hold themselves accountable in any way. I can't raise your voice, can't cut somebody else off. We had our counselor on staff at our church. We called him the chief health officer. He was one of the people that turned against me, but he came every year to our elder meeting from like 2010 or 2011 to when he left in 2018. And at the end of the meeting, the last agenda item was for it, you know, a trained and educated psychologist to give us a critique of the health of the interaction in the meeting. Mm. We were working very, very hard at mutual listening and not anyone being overbearing. And he gave us, you know, I have all the reports that he gave after every meeting. So the picture that's been painted of some domineering, subversive leadership, is just ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, it's just, just not what was happening. But all of a sudden, in my absence, there were factions that were rising up. And there were raised voices and there were um, unduly called meetings without agendas, without minutes. We don't have any minutes on those meetings going till two o'clock in the morning, wearing people out. I have to own that my own struggles were the genesis of people being worn out. Mm -hmm. Some of the really good people were worn out with me. Yeah. And I was worn out. I wouldn't say necessarily with them, but with the responsibility that is the thing that caused me to pull back when I feel um, worn out I tend to withdraw and by withdrawing myself one of the things my associate pastor was pretty upset with me about was you know that could have gone better if I was there but I didn't come back I didn't need an invitation to the elder meeting I was one of the elders I could have just come back but I was so at the end I can't do this anymore I can't do this anymore and so you know, when one of the fathers pulls himself away from the table and then the brothers just start fighting and quibbling, it yeah. just, so I own that part of it. Um, that was a big factor. Another really, really big factor was the fact that the mortgage, um, the, the CFO had left a year earlier. He's still a friend of mine. He's testified uh, at the arbitration, contradicting all these idiotic financial accusations that they manufactured in the wake of their rash decisions to try to justify what they did. They, you know, all of this financial report and all of this disqualification, all of that was trying to re-engineer history to create a, um, a scenario or a narrative that justifies the actions that were taken because I'm sure the congregation was, free falling in attendance and people were crying out, why did it have to be this? You know, da, 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 da. That was all during the time when they wouldn't talk to me ever in spite of all of my appeals. And that was the time period during which they basically contrary to contracts ceased walk in the word, my teaching ministry, which was 14 years in independent ministry mm -hmm. brought into the church in 2010 to help strengthen the church's balance sheet, but with signed contract and agreements that if I ever left harvest, I left with my teaching ministry and its net assets. Walk, it's hard for people to understand. Walking the Word by itself was a $10 million a year ministry. Mm -hmm. $2.5 million in the bank. It was uh, had already become number three on TVN in just four years, which according to Matt Crouch was unprecedented. There was so much favor on that. And um, I was in the process of transitioning it away from uh, three or four million dollars a year buying airtime. Seventy percent of our listenership was digital and we were trying to transition away from buying all this airtime because it always required asking for money and building the donor list. And I was just needed to get off that treadmill and just make it available to whoever wanted it without all the cost. And in that moment right there, former elders 
former employees who were hurt over various things related to their transitions, elders on the board who were just tired of the issues with me, the lack of um, ability to get the refinance done, the nest egg of two and a half million dollars in walk in the word and $4.1 million of, of prepaid TV time. So $6.6 million is right there. Without James, we can take that money. Without James, we don't have to feel frustrated with him anymore. Without James, we have an answer to this campaign of letters from former employees that were hurt. The whole thing came together in five or six loud elder meetings. And to answer your question, they said that they fired me for uh, conduct that was detrimental to the best interests of the church. And that would have been the unguarded and indefensible uh, poor attempt at humor, um, you know, um, illegal, you called it hot mic, but hot mic implies that it was left on uh, accidentally. Yeah, this was intentionally recorded by employee contrary to all expectations and used maliciously by an employee who was exiting the church to have some revenge on me, I would have to believe that even he isn't sour hearted enough to be pleased with where his volley um you know i'm sure he didn't see the number of dominoes that that was going to knock down and even some of the people that wrote the letters about me i believe that their desire was to see what they believed was needed reform not to see the whole church destroyed yeah so i want to believe the best about all those people yeah I, I i totally get that and i understand that and you're a compassionate enough guy that i can see that you would want to do that um so this next question, I think just this is the one thing that I keep on wondering about because I was reading Scott McKnight's book, Tove, prior to our conversation where he delves into a little bit of what happened at the church. And um, how could he possibly know? Yeah, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't I don't know. I think he actually did speak. Uh, he spoke with somebody named Jill Monaco, um, uh, I think was her name. Uh, it, oh my gosh <laughs> we can jump. So there's a great example right there you know this as a pastor yeah you know things about people that you can't say and this is my problem with the bloggers they don't qualify their witnesses mm. so um they don't tell them the truth so um uh, jill monaco wouldn't be in the top 1000 people with knowledge about harvest mm. she would be in the top 1000 and if I told you the things that I knew about Jill Monaco, which I won't do, and I don't want to impugn her, and I haven't talked to her for 10 years, and I hope she's a lovely Christ follower today, that was much of my experience with her. But her own conduct was not flawless, and I'm not going to say any more except to say that that's a really bad play. That's a stomach. That's well, what these people do. They find someone who's willing to speak in a way that fits their narrative, and then they become gospel to the situation we have fact, that, exactly he's quoted in a book if she's quoted in a book scott mcknight is a laughing stock <laughs> well i've, I've got to be honest with you i'm going to give you the quote real quick just because i had a problem with the quote um it said i'll be uh i'll be honest detoxing from fear is hard after leaving HBC, I had a crippling fear of making honest mistakes or making wrong decisions. There should be no fear of failure, fear of man, fear of authority, fear of consequences, fear of speaking the truth, fear of gossip, etc. and healthy organizations. Now, the reason I want to read that to you is because I think this illustrates... That's not refutable. I agree with everything she said in that quote. Well, the it, question is, is, was her conduct the source 
of that fear mm-hmm. or was it culture? And I'll I'll just tell you um, both. Yeah. Both will. And I've already said that I don't think a performance-based management structure is possible in a, I mean, we had four full-time people in our HR department. I don't believe in that anymore. I don't believe that the size of the organist, what I, what I object to is the villainizing of the people who are trying to create systems to make all this workable. Yeah. You're going to spend $10 million on staff. You better have something to show for it. And I was, I, why were people such generous givers at Harvest? Because they knew that the people that were there worked very hard, very hard. What did it cost to get them? Most people who came from the marketplace thought that Harvest was easy street, but people who went to Bible college and got homeschooled and didn't know much about the world thought we work so hard. <laughs> I don't, I don't really, I don't really know exactly what is true. And I'm not defending the marketplace as a biblical answer to management. Sure. I'm just simply saying that I don't think that performance management is able to, I was not able, and I don't see a way for it to join together. Optimizing people and pastoring people is like this. Mm-hmm. And in spite of, um, I don't know what else Jill Monaco has to say, but I think that I would have been much more concerned than she would be about someone feeling afraid or someone feeling um, that they needed to detox. I think it was a very fruitful environment. I think it was a very intense environment. I think it was a very truthful environment that I was trying to transition to a very loving environment. And I'm grieved by anybody who was hurt by their experience there. Yeah. And I don't believe that her conduct there puts her in a position to evaluate anyone. Well, I also have to say about it, too, is that I I totally pick up what you're saying with in terms of um, people's perception of what took place may not necessarily be the, the, the way things actually unfolded. If there's anything that I can relate to as a pastor, it is that. Because pastors are in a difficult position to make difficult decisions, and sometimes in the most personal ways with people. And in a lot of ways, there's not a lot of room for the pastor to come out as a good guy when you have to make some of these difficult decisions, especially in a performance culture. So now we can critique performance culture all day long, but but the reality is, is that these these issues are not black and white. But what I really take exception to and really why I wanted to talk with you is the the painting of the picture in a very black and white way. So let me just dig in for a second into the quote and just say, I think that while I would agree with so much of what she said, and if she had said that stuff in um, a way that would help the organization, sure, you have that conversation with that employee. But I have to also be honest, too, and this goes back to people's perception of things. Um, detoxing from fear is hard. You know who it's hard for? Absolutely everyone that's ever existed on the planet. Um, And then she said, uh, I had a fear of making wrong decisions. You know who else who has a fear of making wrong decisions? Every single human being that's ever existed on the planet. Uh, There should be no fear of failure. I think that that is a really unrealistic 
thing to say. There is fear of failure for every single person that has ever existed on the planet. And I guess all I'm trying to illustrate here is that like, you can look at this quote and you can maybe t just totally disregard the context and you can just paint yourself a picture that may not be the full picture. And this is my concern with so much of what is happening with um, with journalism these days. I, I mean, I will me, go ahead and just say- an analogy. It's so good what you're saying. If you're ready, I have an analogy. Go ahead. Or, or continue with a question if you want. Go ahead. So so is 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 the church an army or is the church a hospital? Hmm. Yeah, so, I would say both maybe. Yeah, well, I would say it's, it's a military. Um, so it's a military procedure with need for a military hospital. So we got to have our MASH unit, right? Mm-hmm. And I would say that, um, first of all, everybody needs time where we're working on them. So, so what is it? Is it the soldiers in the cause or do we, I'll tell you, I saw this at Moody Bible Institute. I saw this at Radio Bible Class in Grand Rapids. The older the Christian institution gets, the more the institution exists to serve the people that work there. It's what it's about. It's, they're not on a mission anymore. The, the people themselves are the mission. This place exists to give me a job, to keep me working. And the longer people have worked in a place, and this was true at Harvest too, the longer people have worked in a place, the more they experience the organization as a place to serve them. And I, I'll just say, I think I'll say, first of all, guilty. Yeah. I think this is true across the board. And, you know, people with sincere objectivity, I think, can acknowledge that. And so... Um, this i don't want to have any fear okay well um you should have fear reading the parable of the talents yeah all right you should have fear reading the par like i want to be able to bury it in a napkin and not be afraid of what the master will say when he returns so who is the person who's leading poorly the one who's creating an environment where you're not in any way prepared for your ultimate accountability or the one who runs an organization where they say, Hey, look, we're all going to answer for this stuff mm -hmm. eventually. So why don't we live together in community as though we know now we're going to answer. And what do, what, what are all the parables about as it relates to work? They're all about ROI. Jesus Christ isn't joking around and he demands a return on his investment. And, and when he says, as for the one who, um, who uh, you know, buried his treasure, um, as for the one who wouldn't forgive, as for the one who would bring him here and slay him before my eyes. Okay. Oh, and I'm afraid. Well, sorry. Mm -hmm. well, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And why did God make the children of Israel fear and tremble as he gave the Ten Commandments? They were all freaking terrified yeah. because, because the love of God is built on a foundation of fear. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Perfect love casts out fear, but there has to be that foundation of fear. So how does a leader create a culture where people are accountable and they know their job is on the line in terms of some set level of performance? We owe it to the Lord. We owe it to the donors. We owe it to the people themselves. But at the same time, it has to be healthy. It has to be constructive. For sure. Let me just say, I didn't stay in a church for 30 plus years without a lot of seasons of accomplishing that in healthy ways. 100%. No doubt. But there was also failure. 
and I'm grieved by anyone who would describe it as toxic. I mean, we had retreats, we had celebrations, we rewarded people for reaching achievements and milestones. I mean, the gap between the team of people that were awarded entry to the best Christian workplace in November of 2018 and what's portrayed on the internet. I'm gonna tell you, there's a lot of people out there who are silent, who are appalled at the gap between what's been stated and what's actually true. And people who go out out of their own hurt and assassinate all the good that we did together in an effort to salve their own wound, which, you know, I have my own wounds too. Sure. And I don't want to tear down anyone. Um, I really don't. I do want there to be a certain level of accountability for the people who broke the law. And that's why I'm in lawsuits because I believe that I'm doing a very, very important and biblical work to allow the powers that God has established for the punishment of wrongdoers. Mm -hmm. I preach for my whole life. If, if, if somebody's beaten their wife, they don't call the church, call the police. And if someone's breaking civil law, which Christians have immense disregard for, yeah. civil law includes the law of eavesdropping and recording people. Christians think civil law is nothing. Yeah. But you can't publicly defame a person. You can't enter into a conspiracy to keep a person from ever gaining employment again in their chosen career field. You can dismiss them from your organization, but you can't plot to keep them from ever. You can't do that. It's illegal. And hide behind all the Bible verses you want to. Yeah. You know. Um, and that, so I have to have. I'm, I'm, I'm defensive of pastors, and I hope to create a case law that pastors will be able to lean wow. on for decades to come to say, I hope Christianity tries to record a podcast about me. I can't wait. Yeah, I think that's I great. I have a lot of thoughts about what they're doing to Mark Driscoll, and it's not legal. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So this find out how legal it is, make me number two. Amen. And, and I appreciate that about you, because I do think that's a noble effort. Um, because here's the thing that's kind of the conundrum for me um, is, especially with Mark Driscoll and you specifically, is when we talk about pastors who are biblically unqualified to be pastors. Now, it is very black and white if you're addicted to drugs, if you're unfaithful to your wife, if you are practicing um, things that are overtly sinful that the Bible clearly says that disqualifies you as a pastor, then the the issue is much more black and white. But with your stories specifically, they are much more gray. So I'm just going to say, from my opinion, as I have waded through everything that took place at Harvest, as I've dug through all of the evidence from both sides of the story, when I look at the story, I do not believe that you were an unqualified, that you were biblically unqualified as a pastor and that you should not have been let go at harvest. But if you were to listen to um, people in the legacy media, people at Christianity Today and others, you, you would get the impression that that is exactly what has happened. And by the way, I think the same thing is true of Mark. They literally say on the podcast every single episode, because it's in their intro, that Mark was fired for being an a-hole. Well, I... That is so subjective to what that actually even is, to be an a-hole. How can that biblically unqualify you or disqualify you from ministry? So this is the this is the difficult thing for me about stories like yours and, and stories like Mark's, is that... You, 
I'm, I'm sorry. I have no entirety with you. I, I'm, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Finish what you were saying. No, that was just it. I was just going to believe. I was just going to say. Obviously, I'm asking the source, but do you feel like you were biblically disqualified for ministry? So, do you do you like coffee? Uh, no, I'm a so rare you know, one. People that really like coffee, the connoisseurs, right? And yeah, they're always posting pictures of their free trade coffee, and the you know they're into it. Yeah, they're really. Into it. You're not into it. I'm not into it. But some people are really into it. You know what I'm talking about? Yep. All right. People who are connoisseurs of something are very, very different than people who are actually doing the thing and running it. Mm. Things are not in the same universe. That's good, yeah. And the conversations between people who are, I'm not saying they're not living out their faith. I'm not saying they're not sharing Christ with their neighbors. I have no judgment of the people's personal faith. I'm just saying when you take up a connoisseur position, to analyze the quality of that and to swirl the wine around in the glass and to smell it. And what yeah. do I think of this one and all that's way different than the guy who's running the winery. Come on. Okay. It's just way different. And so to say about someone there, an a-hole or whatever, okay, well, how many employees do you have? Mm -hmm. And, and how many of them have thanked you when you have had to make the difficult decision that they can't continue? And I'm not saying that that's done perfectly. I'm just saying, does it ever go well? I mean, it does go well sometimes. I've seen it go well. But the number of men who are willing to sign up for true accountability for performance and conduct, who at the end of the day are not willing to accept that message, no matter how the gift is wrapped. Yeah. That's my experience with it. And that's why I don't ever want to run a big organization again. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not saying that other people aren't doing that okay. I'm just going to say that I know a lot of megachurch pastors, and there is a lot. Actually, you have to turn up the fear a lot over what I had it in order to suppress the rancor of the rank and file who, well, why isn't he our youth pastor anymore on campus six? And I don't even know him. <laughs> I wasn't involved in any meetings with him. I would be pressed to think of his wife's name. Like all of that is so wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Like, why do you even have a thing that big? I don't know. I preached my heart out. It became way bigger than it should have. Um, I was the victim of my own fruitfulness. I'm not blaming anyone else. I should have, I, I was happiest when it was one campus. And I knew my youth pastor's name and I loved his family. And those were the best days of ministry. And I do miss those days. And I was ultimately uh, strangled along with a lot of other people by the size of the thing that we created. Mm -hmm. And Can I, I have, you know, I, I didn't answer your question though. So just tell me one more time and I'll answer it right now. Um, no, I was a great response and I do have something to say about, it, but I was just, I was just asking from your perspective, do you think that you were biblically disqualified for ministry? Okay, so on the subject of disqualification, I don't think that the qualifications for eldership were meant to be weaponized and used, especially by people who don't attend the church anymore yeah. or, or, or never did attend the church and live in Toledo. I don't think that they're supposed to have an opinion about that. I know that Paul says that our qualification is from God, and Paul points to the people that were reached. Last night, I did a Zoom call with a local guy here who's doing a Bible study for men. And he has a few people from around the country on the Bible study. And he asked me to help him host it. And there was a guy on there from San Diego. And he said, you know, Pastor James, I was in prison for seven years. And your uh, broadcast ministry really uh, solidified my faith. And I gave my life to Christ. And he told the story. I'm like, um, there's our credentials for ministry. Yes. Right there. 
our credentials for ministry are the people who have been impacted uh, by our life. And um, I'm not suggesting for a second that we can live apart from um, our flaws. We can't. I had them and I have them. I think that um, they fired the best version of James McDonald that existed in 31 years. Hmm. Each year a new model came out and each year that model was a little bit more sanctified and trying with all of his heart to live down uh, the failures of the past, whatever those were, while at the same time not let negatrons write the narrative. There was a lot of good things happening too. And um, I don't believe personally that um, you know a group of truck drivers and insurance men are necessarily in a position when if you announce the book of Hezekiah as the next destination in a sword drill, they'd look in the Bible for five minutes before finding that's not even a book in the Bible. <laughs> yeah, I don't think those guys, and I know what they did in my disqualification process nine months after they fired me. And the documents show that they did it in order to obliterate my ability to be successful in the arbitration so that they could retain the millions of dollars that they had taken from my teaching ministry. Mm. I know the whole story. So that's all in the documents and it's all playing out in court right now because they paid a lady $300,000 to write a financial fiction about me. Mm. And now she's having to uh, account for that in Cook County court because it's just fictional. No, I took all his friends on safaris. Um, I took 13 men hunting between 2015 and 2018, the church's own documents show. And those men gave $8.4 million to Harvest Ministry, um, primarily as a result of my investment of time and friendship with them. So that's what's actually true. Mm -hmm. The fact that the church allowed that leaked the partial information, knowing it would be posted in inflammatory ways. That's right. Again, forget about James McDonald forever. I would be relieved but the damage done to the faith of people who gave and sacrificed and believe that what has been said to them from the front of the church is what's true. Yeah. That's a lot to account for. And um, so I would say that the men who were coming to these conclusions about me are not in a position to be judging anyone. And I don't believe, I believe the qualities that are written in Timothy and Titus for elder qualifications are there for all of us to aspire to, mm -hmm. not for us to weaponize yeah. in relationship to one another. That's great. And I want to suggest one last question um, and just kind of see how you'd respond to it. So this may be a wild-eyed theory, but I, I, have a, a, I have a sinking feeling that it's true, is you've been very honest throughout this conversation. You said that you were a victim sometimes of your fundamentalist upbringing. You were a victim sometimes of just handling situations the the wrong way. Who hasn't done that in their life? You're maybe a victim of getting in over your head and maybe not withdrawing when you should have. Um, I think uh, you were very honest too, and, and I appreciate this, that you were probably a victim of people who maybe you'd rub the wrong way, who were on an elder board or people that we're opportunist on an elder board. Let's just be honest about that. That exists. Um, I want to suggest a th another thing. I think you might have been a victim of the culture, too. I think Mark Driscoll was a victim of the culture. I think that maybe you didn't change as much as you had thought you had, but the culture changed around you. And the yeah. style of ministry that you had developed had... Um, 
had become something that had allowed you to experience the fame that you had experienced. But then as the culture began to shift, it also became a liability. To kind of tease this out a little bit, I would just put it this way, because I am not just concerned, and I am, I'm not just concerned with the people of Harvest, and I understand your heart as a pastor being concerned with them. I'm concerned with the people who read Christianity Today. I'm concerned with the people who listen to the rise and fall of Mars Hill, or read um, uh, the Roy's report on what happened at your church. Um or really anything that she writes. But anyway, um, I'm concerned with a much broader audience, the church, the big C church, the church globally and the church just broadly when they read these things. So victim of the culture. I can't help but wonder if some of these journalists, if some of these people in legacy media were not hungry for their own Me Too movement. And so they were willing to attack anybody that could give them the story that they were looking for. Now, that may be a pretty cynical view, but I'm just telling you, we're living in, and you know this too, Pastor James, we're living in an age where this is happening more and more. I don't know if you're familiar with the Duke lacrosse story, but I I don't want to go into it because I don't want to follow rabbit trails, but I am a pastor after all. But the whole Duke lacrosse story is all about how the media had built up a house of lies, and it almost ruined the lives of three college-aged boys because a black young girl who was mentally unstable accused them of raping them. So, So to me, I look at that story from a cultural perspective, and then I put that lens on what's going on with churches like Mars Hill, Harvest Bible Chapel, and other churches that may be in a similar situation, and I can't help but wonder, are you guys a victim too of this narrativized, one-sided storytelling that doesn't care about the collateral damage that it, that happens in the wake of just getting their Me Too movement so that they can say that they that they had this story. All right, so so very clear and well articulated. Uh, first of all, let me just say that I'm not comfortable using the word victim in regard to myself in, in any respect relative to anything that happened prior to my dismissal. Mm-hmm. I've thought a lot about this. So if we want to go counter to the culture and good for you for being a student of culture, read. Um, a victim is a per is victim is not suffering. If you just because you're suffering, everyone's suffering. Lots of bad. I lost my job. I, I, I can't pay my bills. My wife's going through depression. My son has cancer. My everyone's suffering. A lot of people are suffering. And I, I suffered some things, but I suffering is where you're not contributive to it a victim is where it was done to you and you have like even less role in it in any way and because i've been pretty open on this uh recording about my contributive faults um, i don't believe they justify what happened mm-hmm. Firing, and they most certainly don't justify the illegalities that happened after my firing. But I've been pretty open about my contributive fault, so I don't think that I am a victim. But uh, to me, a victim is forced ill treatment under threat of greater ill treatment if you expose what's happening. Mm-hmm. So the um, child being abused and being told, "If you tell anyone, I'll kill your parents." Now we're into victimization. Okay. Forced ill treatment with no recourse. I think the Duke, Duke people were certainly abused and were victimized. I think that myself and my family was abused and victimized after I was fired. 
but nothing leading up to the firing um, would I put in the category of victim or abuse, just for clarity. Mm -hmm. And um, um, I've actually um, done a lot of study on post-traumatic stress disorder, and I certainly... So here would be an example of one of the consequences of being under long-term trauma as I was in leading this church. And I've worked directly with some very big name counselors. I'm not going to drop their names now, but I've just, I've had to learn a lot about this. One of the things that happens when you've experienced long-term trauma is your threat response is destroyed. So the guy coming back from Vietnam, here's a car backfire and he thinks immediately the feelings of being in the trench and the warfare come back to it. And in the same way, I had been through so much difficult conflict in running a church, so much difficult conflict and eating too much of it myself to come to peace and not always resolving it in a healthy way that small conflicts would come up and I couldn't assess the size of it. And I brought too much energy to the resolution of things that at times could have just been left alone. Mm -hmm. And I see that about myself, that I was really in, and I think a lot of pastors go through this, and I was in really in decline about it. All of that I see, none of that is victim, but there are things that you could understand, a compassionate person would understand. Why is our pastor struggling? Why is he behaving differently than I've known him? Why? And, and, and I think what's in the culture is, is that the leader is not a person. Hmm that the leader is not worthy of care, that all they are like this. I haven't read this coming night book, but the, the premise of it is just outrageous to me. Mm -hmm. And it's just, God bless these people that just can't get enough of, that's what I think about the CT thing with Mark Driscoll. It's like, we don't care how much Mark suffers. We're going to get our names in lights by talking about something that people want to talk about. We're going to talk about it in a way that the culture wants to hear about it. It's that freaking guy at the top. It's that freaking guy at the top. Yeah. And he's the person. And we're going to take down people like that. And that whole industry is the culture. And I don't think that I was a victim of it. Um, I, I think that my contributing faults inflamed that dynamic in the culture and it had a big impact um but i have only been able to get traction to my own health by owning my contributive fault and that's why people are like well why are you taking all those people to court then why don't you just let it go well because i believe that when we entrust to god's established authorities the resolution of illegalities yeah then as it relates to things that are just mutual conflict between people when we focus on the ways that we failed that's how i've been able to find peace i'm not prosecuting vengeance i've given those over to the legal authorities they're going to find a resolution that's going very 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 well for us and i'm just leaving that to the established authorities the people who broke the law can answer to the law and whatever the outcomes will be i'll accept those things and then as it relates to the relational dynamics, I'm keeping my heart tender and free from bitterness toward everyone and keeping my focus on the ways that I failed and could have done better. Regardless of whether I think the outcomes were justified, I can't control that. The only thing I can control is the person I see in the mirror and he has more than enough to own in the relational side of things. And um, certainly not to be getting on my high horse as some of the people you were quoting are doing as though they had no contributive fault. I don't want to make that mistake. 
Yeah. Well, I think that's really well put. And it's my prayer that through all of the things that you do as you biblically and spiritually discern kind of the will for moving forward uh, for your life, that all of those things would bring um, a sense of healing, uh, a sense of restoration, uh, just because I believe that probably one of the hardest things that I've ever done is start and end a church. And I can only imagine what it must have been like for you to be in the position that you're in. And nobody can relate to it. Even though I have that limited experience, I can't relate to it. Um, so my heart definitely goes out to you. And I and I pray, this may sound like a weird prayer to some people who aren't willing to think deeply about it, but I pray that that court case and the arbitration is a source of healing. I pray that all of that is a way that God can help you to reconcile what took place. Um, and uh, there's no doubt that the gift and the calling that's on your life has been so profound for so many years, and there's uh, so much more to come. So I look forward to uh, hearing more about what takes place kind of with the trial, but also moving forward as you kind of start to develop in this season of life what God has for you. So um, so congratulations for all of that, and thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Reed, for your time and for your thoughtful and uh, gracious comments. And I just pray that anything that I've said that is uh, not consistent with the unity that the Lord wants to bring about would fall from your listeners' minds immediately, and anything that was helpful and consistent with what the Lord is trying to affect, which is the loving unification of all of his children, it's what Jesus prayed for, that that would stick with all of us and that we could live up to those things. Yeah, amen. I, I, I And it will. And there's no doubt that throughout this conversation, you've been very tenderhearted, and, uh, and your conversation has been seasoned with grace, so I appreciate that. Um, now, before I let you go, tell me real quick, how we can uh, stay up to date with what you are doing. Um, so I have a website, jamesmcdonaldministries.org, and we have taken all of my teaching through all of the decades, and we're in the process of posting all that. We call it uh, all digital, all free, all the time. One of the things we got back in the arbitration was uh, over a million dollars worth retail worth of um, teachings and curriculums and books and all of these things. And my prayer has been that over the next 10 years, the Lord would allow us to give all of that away. Hmm. So anybody who wants to write to us at the ministry can simply just pay the postage for whatever we would ship to them. And all of the resources from everything that I've ever been blessed to preach and teach is available free of charge uh, to people. And um, we just want to go back about the business of blessing people and being generous and sharing God's word as he directs us. And uh, I'm doing that weekly on the Home Church Network, and that's available on our website as well. Okay, awesome. I'm going to go ahead and just say this as a commercial, that for my listeners only exclusive, you get free James McDonald material if you write to him. So, uh, But you have to subscribe to get it. Um, ah. Just kidding. <laughs> uh, no, thank you, uh, Pastor James. Absolutely fascinating conversation. Thank you for your time, um, and I look forward to maybe chatting with you in the future. Good. Let's do that again, and hopefully we'll have a good update, and let's just pay God's grace upon everyone involved. Amen. All right. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Bye-bye. Our thanks again to our guests for being on the show today. Indie Thinker with Reed Uberman was brought to you by our sponsors. If you like what you heard today, please do us a big favor and give it a five-star review and like it and share it with friends. And if you want to hear more awesome guests, make sure to check out past episodes. Indie Thinker is a nonprofit paid for by our sponsors and the generous gifts of people like you. In order to hear more great guests like you did today, please consider giving a tax-deductible gift. 
by going to IndieThinker.org. And just remember, your voice matters, but infinitely more when you think for yourself.